This episode is a two-parter. Part two will follow very soon. But first, part one. It works better that way. Welcome to another special from the British Broadcasting Century podcast. I'm Paul Carenza, and between seasons, we're offering a few different takes on the earliest days of radio. We spent 20 episodes in season one telling the BBC origin story, largely through the spring and summer of 1922. This time, we see that same period from a different perspective, the parliamentary view. Debates, dissent, disagreement and different guest actors, all here on the British Broadcasting Century. Hello, hello, this is Paul Carenza calling. This is London calling. Hello, hello, and not just hello, hello, but... Is the Postmaster General prepared substantially to modify and relax at an early date the existing regulations restricting the use of wireless telephones? And will he sanction and promote the daily broadcasting by established and suitably equipped radio stations of wireless telephone messages, likely to prove of value to trade and industry in this country, or being of general public interest? The Postmaster General, Mr Calloway. I am entirely sympathetic towards the idea of utilising wireless telephony for the broadcasting of messages of the kind referred to by the Honourable Member. The whole question is being referred to the Imperial Communications Committee in order that the views of the other departments concerned may be obtained as early as possible. Well, that was actually a written question and a written answer from April the 3rd, 1922. So it wasn't said out loud but it was the first mention of the word broadcasting in UK Parliament. And that's 10 days after Peter Eckersley took over the mic after a race from the pub. See earlier episodes for details. So all this was just as regular broadcast radio was booming in popularity, the MPs thought they'd better get involved. So before we get to the actual debates, I thought that written question and answer was worth a mention. But there's plenty more where that came from. This is a special, and on specials we go a little deeper, we outstay our welcome. If you want the pacey documentary-style story of broadcasting, come back for our main season of episodes. But here, this week, this will be like tuning in to the BBC Parliament channel, except it's 1922, and they're discussing if and how there should be a BBC. So I won't edit. I will let the MPs speak for themselves. In this episode, you're going to hear me as the Postmaster General, and I'm very grateful to our cast of Marvels. You'll hear Paul Hayes, Mike Simmons, Paul Stubbs, Wayne Clark, Adam Hawkins, Daniel Edison, Cameron Potts, Philip Rowe, Alan Stafford, Andrea Smith, David Kirkland, James Maidman Fullard, Paul Savage, Lynn Robertson Hay, Eddie Johnston, Philip Corsius, Pete Hawkins, Sean Jacks and Jack Shaw. Who sounds like the opposite of Sean Jacks. Sean Jacks, by the way, has a new podcast of interviews that he's just started. And his first interview is with me. So if you fancy hearing more of that and my backstory, it's called Tell Me A Bit About Yourself. And we had a 45-minute chat about, well, this podcast and sitcom writing and stand-up comedy and all sorts of things. Do listen to Sean's podcast, Tell Me A Bit About Yourself. Jack Shaw has a podcast too. Wrong-term memory like Wikipedia, but for your ears. But here on this podcast, we're telling the grand story of broadcasting's birth in Britain. And we're telling it the slow way. 
We've had season one, mostly spent in 1922. We've got season two to come. That will be all about the first year of the BBC. And in this interregnum period, which is largely so that I can read and research and, all right, maybe do a little bit of other work that's nothing to do with this podcast. Of course, it all kind of backfired because this special, which is meant to buy me time to work on other things, yeah, that didn't quite happen because this has become an editing behemoth wrangling these 19 voices into the parliamentary debates. Ah, it's a good job. I love the podcast. For this second special, then, we're diving back into the timeline of season one to present to you an alternative view of broadcasting from the lofty viewpoint of Westminster. You will hear every time that Parliament mentioned broadcasting in its first year of existence. And hopefully it won't be as dry as that sounds because there were lots of heated debates about it. Let's not forget, before 1921, there was no such word as broadcasting, apart from it being an agricultural term, spreading seed far and wide. Or occasionally, it was a figure of speech for, yes, sending an idea or a message in a scattershot manner. But this word broadcasting had now found an accidental invention to latch onto. Remember that broadcasting came out of point-to-point messaging, so wireless telephony to generally send paid messages from here to there. But that communication was a bit leaky. In other words, the recipient heard you, but so did anyone else tuned into that frequency. So as Parliament was grappling with this new technology, we're going to hear how they fought for control of it, how the concept of one broadcasting company was born, and we'll encounter a few political scrapes along the way. All of that brought to you by a cast of thousands. Well, listeners to this podcast and actors and all sorts have lent their voices and we love them for it. And you will love, I hope, these political broadcasting moments brought to life for the very first time. Because here we are all about informing, educating and, of course, entertaining. So this episode's informative education comes with some entertainment, a dramatisation. I emailed Hansard, who keep the parliamentary record, and they said, yeah, I was free to do as I wished with the uh, parliamentary text, as long as I say that this contains parliamentary information licensed under the Open Parliament Licence version 3.0. What a marvellous thing open democracy is. To business. Now, I'm sure you want to know what the Postmaster General is going to say about broadcasting. Well, Sir Henry Norman, he wanted to know as well. May the 1st, his is the second written question to mention the B word in Parliament in 1922. Has the Postmaster General arrived at any decision concerning the broadcasting of musical, instructive and entertaining matter by wireless telephony? This is like points of view. Mr Kellaway replied, The details of the arrangement have not yet been decided in all cases, but I propose to make a full statement on this matter when I introduce the post office estimates on Thursday next. And he did make that full statement. On May the 4th, Star Wars Day 1922, the Postmaster General became the first to verbally use the word broadcasting in Parliament in this speech, introducing the concept to the House. The Postmaster General, Mr Kellaway... I come to a subject not closely connected with postal administration, but which has recently aroused a great deal of interest in the press and in the country, and that is the question of the broadcasting of wireless messages or radio-telephone broadcasting. That system is a great vogue in the United States, and a representative of the post office who was recently in the United States, Mr F.J. Brown, has brought back a report showing that there are 750,000 of these receiving stations opened in the United States. There has also been a considerable increase in the United States in the number of transmitting stations. 
And the result of this increase has been chaos. And Mr Hoover, the minister of the American government under whose charge this work is done, has recently appointed a committee to propose legislation to correct the chaos brought about by the unregulated erection of transmitting stations. They have drawn up, I understand, very drastic recommendations. And we fortunately have avoided that difficulty. I hope we shall be able to learn from the experience of the United States and that the proposals which I'm going to make will enable the public interested in this new science and desiring to avail themselves of it to have a reasonable service without causing interference either with commercial use or government use of the wireless or with the facilities open to each other. Proposals came to me from several quarters for permission to open transmitting stations in this country. I referred those proposals to the wireless subcommittee of the Imperial Communications Committee, presided over by my right honourable friend, the member for Blackburn, Sir Henry Norman. They made recommendations which I adopted. I have decided to allow the establishment of a limited number of radio telephone broadcasting stations. The country will be divided roughly into areas centering upon London, Cardiff, Plymouth, Birmingham, Manchester, Newcastle, Glasgow or Edinburgh, but not both, and Aberdeen, and one or more broadcasting stations will be allowed in each of those areas. Permission for these stations will only be granted to British firms who are bona fide manufacturers of wireless apparatus. It is impossible, and it would not be in the interests of wireless if I granted all the applications that have been made to me for the right of transmission. And one of those applications was from the Daily Mail and the Daily Express. They wanted a radio station and they were turned down. What I am doing is to ask all those who apply, the various firms who have applied, to come together at the post office and cooperate so that an efficient service may be rendered and that there may be no danger of monopoly and that each service shall not be interfering with the efficient working of the other. The stations will be limited to a power of one and a half kilowatts and furnished with wavelengths which should not interfere with other services. The normal hours for broadcasting will be from 5pm to 11pm, except on Sundays, when there will be no limit. There will be certain regulations in regard to the character and classes of news which these agencies will be allowed to transmit, but on that head I have not yet come to a final decision. Yeah. Who will be the sensor? What will be the wavelength? Uh, there are various wavelengths. It covers a fairly wide field. I cannot give the various lengths at the moment, but I will see that they are provided before the discussion is ended. I also propose that the facilities for obtaining permits for the reception of these messages shall be greatly simplified, and in the future it will be possible for anyone desiring to install a receiving set to go to any post office and receive it for 10 shillings in the way they can obtain any other license. The possibilities of this service are almost unlimited. In the United States of America, it was suggested that some arrangement might be made by which speeches of members of Congress might be radiated. And I can foresee a time when perhaps on this table a receiver will be properly concealed so as not to jar the aesthetic sense of members and their eloquence will be transmitted to those of their constituents who are prepared to pay for the cost. The Postmaster General there ending the first parliamentary speech to mention broadcasting by pondering if one day MPs might broadcast from the Commons themselves. At this point there was still only one radio station in Britain, in Essex, but a week later that changed. London 2LO was launched by Marconi's and five days later Manchester 2ZY launched by Metropolitan Vickers. On that same day while we're here, May 16th, here's a thing that we could have, would have, should have mentioned last series. The first Irish singer on radio. Now, I read this on a blog post recently by our friends at the Irish Broadcasting Hall of Fame. 2MT Riddle, now on its fourth month of weekly shows, they welcome the Irish soprano Isolde O'Farrell She's a regular at Irish music events in London. She sang Softly Awakes My Heart from Samson and Delilah. 
Plenty more info about that on the Irish Broadcasting Hall of Fame blog. We will put a link to that post in the show notes. But we're here to talk about Parliament. Now, two days after radio's first Irish singer, May the 18th, as 400 wireless manufacturers were being invited to form a consortium, Lieutenant Colonel Murray asked the Assistant Postmaster General, On what principle and subject to what conditions are licences for wireless broadcasting stations given to industrial concerns? The Assistant Postmaster General, Mr Pike Pease, said there was a conference underway and that the Postmaster General would make a statement the following week. Lieutenant Colonel Murray asked again five days later on May the 23rd and the Postmaster General gave a similarly fob-off answer. I'm not yet in a position to furnish the information required by the Honourable and Gallant Member. As he was informed on the 18th instant, a statement will be made on the subject as soon as the conditions are definitely settled. The manufacturers concerned are meeting today with a view to formulating proposals for my consideration. Now, some of our parliamentary snapshots are short, like that one. Some are much longer. Like this one, Broadcasting's second verbal mention in the UK Parliament, three weeks after the first. Now, during those weeks, the discussions of the big six manufacturers were continuing. The Postmaster General had asked them to meet to thrash out how to unite as a combine of either one or maybe two broadcasting companies. And in those meetings, the name British Broadcasting Company had been suggested by Frank Gill, Meanwhile, Arthur Burroughs had been continuing to experiment on 2LO, but he'd been asked by listeners to avoid broadcasting on Tuesdays because they want to listen to Eckersley mocking him on 2MT. Up in Manchester, Metrovic were slowly starting to experiment at 2ZY. In America, new stations were popping up all the time, and radio guru David Sarnoff was just starting to suggest that maybe informing, educating and entertaining might be three good things for a public service like this to aim towards if, that is, he could be heard among the wireless noise in the States. And in Westminster, on June the 16th, 1922, MPs were reading the Wireless Telegraphy and Signalling Bill because the Postmaster General, Mr Kellaway, knew that this was Broadcasting's way in. Order! Order! The Wireless Telegraphy and Signalling Bill. The Postmaster General, Mr Kellaway... I beg to move that the bill be now read a second time. Uh, This is a bill to amend the Wireless Telegraphy Act 1904, under which wireless telegraphy has so far been controlled. That act was limited to the duration of two years and has been continued since 1906 under the expiring Laws Continuance Act. Some form of control is growingly necessary in connection with the practice of wireless telegraphy and telephony. In the United States, a condition of chaos has resulted from the lack of government control. And the government there are making very drastic proposals to remedy the condition of things. This bill continues the proposals in the 1904 Act and also makes a number of new proposals found to be necessary as a result of the experience of that Act. The steps to be taken are considered by an interdepartmental committee representative of the Post Office, the Air Ministry, the Admiralty, the War Office and all other government departments interested in the use of wireless. The bill does not propose in any way to withdraw from the public the advantages of wireless communication. On the contrary, its effect will be by ensuring the proper use of wireless to assist its development. The bill will leave full scope for inventive genius by allowing the erection of experimental stations in proper hands. At the present time, some 9,500 licences have been issued, of which 9,100 are licences for receiving and 400 licences for transmission. 
The greatest difficulty arises in the transmission, and it is the unregulated issue of licenses for transmission in the United States that resulted in the chaos there to which I have referred. We give permission readily for receiving stations, and I am looking forward to a very rapid increase in the number of applications for such licenses. The conditions under which broadcasting by wireless telephony will be worked have not yet been decided. As the House knows, I think it is common knowledge, when this question became of real practical importance two or three months ago, I called together all the firms in the country who had shown themselves interested in broadcasting by wireless telephony and asked them to come to an agreement amongst themselves as to the conditions under which the practice of this new art should operate. Now, I do not regard it as desirable that the work should be done by the government and I do not contemplate a condition of things under which the post office will be doing this work. The part I foresee for the post office is that of securing the freest possible play for the inventiveness and ingenuity of all who are interested. Now, I am sorry that I have not so far received any proposals from the firms who are discussing this question, but a meeting is taking place at the post office today between the firms interested and the post office officials, and I hope it will be found that some agreement has been come to. When I have said that the main provision of the bill is to continue the powers contained in the 1904 Act and that we are making proposals to amend what our experience has shown to be necessary, I've really covered the ground covered by the bill. One interesting provision of the bill is that it shall apply to wireless and aircraft. When the bill of 1904 was drawn up, no one had contemplated the possibility of wireless being used in aircraft, and the bill, in that respect, dealt only with vessels at sea. It is now necessary that we should have some guarantee that those who use wireless on aircraft are competent. That provision is felt to be necessary by the Air Ministry, and a proposal to that effect is contained in Section 6 of the Bill. One other provision is that dealing with the position of the Dominions. Hitherto, I've had powers of control over the use of wireless on ships registered anywhere in the British Dominions when on the high seas. But as all the self-governing Dominions and many of the Crown colonies and protectorates now possess the necessary legal powers of control, the Colonial Office think that the power, which in the past has been reserved to the Postmaster General, might be abrogated. It will be abrogated by this bill, while this is a modest bill, which does not raise any new principle, it is a bill of considerable importance. Without such a bill, the development of wireless, both telephony and telegraphy, would be very seriously hampered, and we might well be experiencing the great difficulties which have arisen in the United States. Mr Kennedy, is it proposed under the bill to ensure that all operators on British shipping are qualified operators, and to that extent improve the situation? Sir Douglas Newton. The Postmaster General indicated that the bill is generally one to make permanent the powers he has hitherto possessed. In one or two important details, this bill breaks new ground. One is that it makes provision for dealing with the question of licensing in respect of wireless receiving sets, and it is upon that point that I wish to say a word. In Clause 2, subsection 1e, power is taken by the Postmaster General to prescribe, subject to the consent of the Treasury, the fees to be paid in respect of the grant or renewal of any licence or certificate. That, presumably, governs the licences now required, for which a fee of 10 shillings is chargeable in respect of all the wireless receiving sets. Would it not be possible to add to the clause a provision that any regulations which increase the fees chargeable are to be laid on the table of the House? 
it is most important that the receiving stations should not be hampered in any way. It is only a few weeks ago that those who were interested in the subject, and they are very many, had their hopes raised very high. Great enthusiasm was created, particularly among the younger members of the community. They felt that they would shortly be able to get a very good wireless service. We were told that eight broadcasting stations were to be established. These eight stations were to cover the whole of the countryside, and all who cared to listen in would be able to listen in. I thought it might prove of considerable advantage, particularly to the rural worker, who would get information which otherwise would not be available to him. But up to the present, nothing has been done in that direction. I understand that the difficulty is a financial one. I'm very glad that the difficulty has arisen at this stage, because in the United States, chaos has been caused, largely as a result of not taking a long view and seeing how the scheme was eventually to be financed. I would suggest that this matter can be financed most effectually by placing at the disposal of the broadcasting stations some proportion of the fees now charged in respect of these receiving licences. Under the provisions of the bill, it would be possible to increase those fees. I see no reason for increasing them. It's been estimated that one million sets will shortly be established in this country. If only 200,000 or 300,000 were established, that would result in an annual income of from £175,000 to £200,000 per year, and half of that distributed over the eight broadcasting stations should secure a very efficient and effective service. Therefore, I hope the Postmaster General will consider the possibility of setting aside portions of these licence fees for the purpose of financing broadcasting stations. I hope he may be able to consider favourably the possibility of doing it on a 50-50 basis. The service, which would be rendered by the Postmaster General in this respect, is a very small service indeed. It approximates very closely to the five shilling fee charged to the driver of a motor car. It is merely a registration fee and very little work will be undertaken or, as far as I can visualise the position, will be required by the Postmaster General in this connection. I also ask if it is not possible at once to give some sort of temporary licence to those who are willing to broadcast information. The Right Honourable Gentleman told us that difficulties have arisen. At the same time, I do hope that a service may be forthcoming under temporary licence and that those of us who take an interest in the matter may not be held up from receiving a service of some kind and that something will be done in this direction pending the formation of permanent regulations. So as you may hear, there is a keenness. Sir Douglas Newton there, one of the many eager listeners in in the Commons. Parliament would often cut short sessions so that MPs could catch Eckersley on 2MT on a Tuesday evening. Politicians weren't seeking to stamp down on this new technological upstart. No, no, no. They wanted it to work, but to avoid the problems in America. Later that week, the big six manufacturers had a money meeting as to how broadcasting could work. Licences, profit or lack of it, was all thrashed out. And at the more entry level of radio, the Marconi company was staging a huge event in Peckham, showing off radio. It was called The Miracle of Broadcasting. And it included Arthur Burroughs, before he was first voice of the BBC, demonstrating this new kit and selling a few radio sets. Burroughs at this stage still thought that on-air advertising was the future of the industry's finances. And indeed, he dreamt of a time when radio would broadcast Parliament live. They, of course, didn't for many decades. But on this episode, we are reliving it as if they did. Two days after the Peckham demo in South London, to North London, Elstree, for the capital's first proper broadcast concert. Music was allowed for the first time on 2LO, and they hired Stanton Jeffries as music director. And four days after that, June 28th, Parliament started looking across the channel for what radio could do next. And on this occasion, the Postmaster General is not involved. Mr Malone! Is the Minister of Agriculture aware of the extent to which wireless telephony is being utilised in France 
to assist agriculture by broadcasting a weather bulletin twice daily from the National Meteorological Office. And are any similar schemes in contemplation for this country? Captain Guess. I have been asked to answer this question. Pending the results of inquiries which are being made, I have no information other than that which has appeared in the press as to the French arrangements for issuing weather forecasts to agriculturists by wireless telephony. The feasibility of using wireless telephony for this purpose in this country is at present under consideration. I may say, however, that the Air Ministry issues daily, by means of wireless telegraphy, a number of weather reports which could be of considerable use to agriculturists, and with a view to meeting the case of agriculturists and others possessing or about to install wireless receiving apparatus, a pamphlet giving particulars regarding these messages and instructions as to their reception and utilisation has been prepared and will be issued in the course of a few days. In addition, the pre-war arrangement by which afternoon forecasts were issued during the harvest season was extended two years ago, so as to enable a farmer, on payment of the cost of telegraphing, to obtain a special forecast at any time which suited his individual needs. Weather reports. What a good idea. The French beat us to it. Over the next month, the big six wireless manufacturers continue hammering out this deal of how broadcasting could work. And they settle on one broadcasting company rather than two. Broadcasting is a commercial enterprise and these wireless bods intend to make money from selling radios. But what about radios from overseas? What can be done to make Britain's home listeners buy domestic? On July the 26th, the Postmaster General had questions to answer on how to keep British broadcasting British. Debate on wireless broadcasting. Lieutenant Commander Kenworthy. May I ask the Postmaster General, has an undertaking been given to the manufacturers intending to establish wireless broadcasting stations in this country that no imported wireless sets will be licensed and that either a complete ban or a high tariff will be imposed on such sets? Mr Calloway. As I stated on the 18th instant in reply to a question by the honourable and gallant member for Kincardine and West Aberdeen, the manufacturers of wireless apparatus in this country have been informed that in the event of their supply in the capital required and providing efficient broadcasting services, I will agree that the apparatus which it will be permissible to use under the post office licence for the reception of those services shall for two years be restricted to apparatus manufactured in Great Britain. Was this matter before the Cabinet? And was there a Cabinet decision promising protection to these people before the Right Honourable Gentleman gave this promise? Uh, the answer to the first point raised by the Honourable and Gallon Member is that the matter was considered by the Cabinet. Has the Post Office considered that, if they shut out foreign inventions from coming into this country, the development of science may suffer in this country? I can assure the Honourable and Gallant Member I have taken into account all these very elementary considerations. Protecting British business versus developing global cooperation. A tricky balance. Two days later, it all kicks off. But the next debate is a biggie. A full half hour, so this special is to be continued. Tune in next time for part two of the British Broadcasting Century Parliamentary Special. You've been listening to Paul Hayes as Sir Douglas Newton, Mike Simmons as Lieutenant Colonel Murray, Paul Stubbs as Mr. Kennedy, Wayne Clark was the Speaker of the House, Adam Hawkins as Captain Guest, Andrea Smith was Lieutenant Commander Kenworthy, James Bateman Fullard was Mr. Malone, the Postmaster General Mr. Galloway was me, Paul Carenza, who also presented and produced, Will Farmer composed the original music, and this episode contains parliamentary information licensed under the Open Parliament Licence version 3.0. Thank you, Hansard. It's the best thing you've done since Mbop. 
Stay informed, educated and entertained and join us next time on the British Broadcasting Century.